All right, Revelation 2 and 3, seven messages to the seven churches that Jesus told John to write to. Nothing magical about the order. It's the order that a letter would get to the church. John's on, in exile on Patmos. The first place he, a letter would get is Ephesus. It's there on the, on the coast. And then all of Revelation was read to every church. It was read in their worship service. But there's a specific word or message of introduction to each one. It's, it, it's Jesus putting their specific circumstance in this context of what God is doing in the world. Remember, Revelation, it's a revealing, a disclosing. These guys are going, what's happening? We have this pagan emperor. Persecution is increasing. Hostility is increasing. Jesus hasn't returned yet. It's been 60 years. What's going on? And Revelation, is, it's a pulling back of the curtain. Here's what's going on in the heavenly realm that you can't see. This is what's actually happening. Comfort those who are being faithful. Judgment, warning, rebuke to those who are being unfaithful. And in the midst of that, Jesus is saying, and here's how what's going on in your locality is, it's a piece of this bigger puzzle. Here's how what's going on in your location is impacted by this greater reality of what God is doing. Jesus is the one dictating these messages to John. Remember, he's recording everything that he hears and that he sees. We, Jesus last week, he's described in this very symbolic language that shows he's suitable. He's, he, he, he's the, he has the qualifications to deliver these messages. His hair's white. He's wise. His eyes are blazing like fire. He can see through facades. He knows what's really going on. There's a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. His words are precise and exact, and he's the one who is speaking. Today, we're going to look at the first letter to Ephesus. It's the only church we really know a lot about. It's mentioned in Acts. Paul helped strengthen this church. He was there for three years. There's a letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament. We know more about it than we do any of the other um, churches that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. Ephesus is kind of like New York City to us. It's not the capital, but it was the most important city. He, uh, it, it's commercial center. It's also the, um, the religious center of the area, very cosmopolitan. And again, it's the most populated city as well, about 250,000 people. I just saw Brian and Bethany. I'm just, I was distracted by y'all all the way from Oregon, right? Glad y'all are here today. <laughs> and they clapped for you. It was polite clapping, but it was clapping nonetheless. All right. You just threw me off there. I hadn't seen y'all in a long time. So to the church in Ephesus, we'll start in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So all seven messages in Revelation have a common outline. There's a common template, and we're going to use that template to look at each letter. So we'll start with this one. So each letter set, begins with 
to the angel of the church. We said last week the angel may be um, a, a, a literal angel. It may be the human leader of the church like the pastor. It doesn't really matter which one you pick. It's not going to affect your interpretation. Then Jesus is described. In our letter, Jesus is described as the one who walks among the lampstands and holds these seven stars in his hands. That's taken from chapter 1. The lampstands are the churches. So we have Jesus as one who's walking among the churches. He knows what he's talking about. He's aware of what's going on in their city. He's holding these stars, whether that means the pastors or the angel. He's holding these stars in his right hand. He's protecting them. There's some strong words that he's going to say. He has a strong word for Ephesus. But he's doing it from a place of love and a desire to keep them. They're in his right hand. He's protecting them. Then there's a word of encouragement, of, of comfort. There's a word of warning, except for two of the churches. This morning in Philadelphia, there's a call to repent. There's, uh, there's a warning if you don't repent. There's a promise to those who overcome. And then there's a, a call that says, listen, take to heart what's being said. Remember verse one, or chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed are those who take the words of this book to heart. So again, this letter to Ephesus, it follows that pattern. Comfort. What's the word of comfort or encouragement? Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. That word is toil, not a word that we use very often. Hard work that is accompanied by trouble and difficulty. And your perseverance. That's a really important word in Revelation. We saw that last week. The Capacity to bear up well under difficult circumstances. So what I hear Jesus saying to the church in Ephesus is you're doing, you're working hard and, and, and the work is hard. And you're doing well with that. You're working hard and the work is hard and you're doing a good job. You're doing a really good job of identifying false teachers and, and limiting their influence. You're keeping them out. Way back in Acts 35, 40 years before. Paul spent three years building up the church in Ephesus, and he knows he's not going to see them again. So he has this farewell met meeting with the leaders of the church. And part of his message to them was to beware, to, to be on the lookout, be alert. He says, for savage wolves, that's what you need to look out for. Savage wolves will come from among you and try to destroy your church. You've got to be ready for that. Be on the lookout for those guys. And it, according to Jesus, for the last 30, 35, 40 years, they've done a really good job of identifying these false teachers, these false apostles, these wolves, and keeping them out of the church. They hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. They don't hate the Nicolaitans, but they hate the practices. We don't know a ton about those. This heretical sect seems to have had some influence in a couple of these seven cities. Again, we don't know everything they did, but they're appears to be some, there was some, they, they condone sexual immorality, whether that was actually in their church services or just as an extension, we're not sure, but that's what they were about. Again, it's this behavior, this immoral behavior, and they were saying that's okay, we have, we have freedom in Christ, and so we can basically sleep with whoever we want to sleep with. And Jesus hates that, hates those practices, and he says, y'all hate those things too, that's great. They're doing a good job at identifying false teaching and a good job at identifying this immoral lifestyle. You're doing a good job of keeping those things out of the church. That's their encouragement. But then they have this word of rebuke and warning, but I hold this against you. You've, 
You've forsaken your first love. That word forsaken maybe is not quite strong enough. In 1 Corinthians 7, that word is translated divorced. What I hear Jesus saying is you're divorcing God. That's what you're doing. That's what's happening in your church. You're actually divorcing God. And and, and the result, if you don't repent, if you don't change your behaviors, you're not going to be a church anymore. Taking the lampstand away. You're doing a great job at keeping the, the evil and the error out. But the essence, the heart of what it means to be the church, the called out people of God, is to have relationship with him. And you're neglecting that. You're forsaking that. Again, think about that word divorce. That's a strong word. And maybe that's what it takes to kind of open up our ears so we can hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us. I get it. So one of the primary features in Ephesus was this temple to Artemis. It's as big as a football field. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People came from all over to visit this temple. One of these, uh, the, the leading industries of Ephesus was silversmithing. People made these idols to Artemis and people would come and buy them. In Acts chapter 19, Demetrius, who's part of this guild of silversmiths, he, he gets everybody together. The other silversmiths, he actually starts a whole riot in the city because those guys are losing money. Paul has been preaching the gospel. People are becoming Christians. And as they do, they, they quit going to the temple of Artemis. And they quit buying the idols that Demetrius and his guys are producing, taking money out of their pocket. And they get fired up. And they say, in Ephesus, the city of Artemis, and they start this huge riot. There's a theater, 25,000 seats, and they rush in there and they drag a couple of Paul's companions with them. Paul's friends have said, you don't need to be anywhere around that. He wants to go, and they say no, and so they've got a couple of his traveling buddies with him. And again, there's this chaos, this mob scene in this theater. Two hours, people are shouting, great is Artemis. And then a city clerk, a, a local official stands up and says, Time out. Listen, everybody knows. Everybody knows that Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of Artemis. Everybody knows that. That's, it's a key part of their identity as Ephesians. We worship this goddess, and we worship in this temple. So you can imagine if you've got a dozen or two dozen Christians that are meeting in your home, and there are other places where they're meeting, They don't have a sanctuary the size of a football field, for sure. They're meeting in homes. And again, it's 10 and 20 people at a time gathered together in homes throughout the city. And you can imagine in that context where what it means to be an Ephesian is to worship Artemis. It's a part of your identity. Again, as an Ephesian, it's a huge part of the economy of your city. And and there you are with your 12 in your house. And it's not just that you're in this hostile religious environment. You've also got these wolves that you've been beaten down for 30, 35, 40 years. These guys that are coming through. You're on the Ephesus is at the center of several major commercial crossroads. So you've got guys who are constantly flowing through there. And so you're, you've got to be you're, you're, you're alert for false teachers from outside. And again, these wolves coming up from within. After 20 years and 30 years and 40 years of that, it's easy to think that you develop a bunker kind of fortress mentality. And everything becomes about, we got to be careful. we got to make sure we're crossing our T's and dotting our I's. we got to make sure everybody signs a statement of faith. 
Nothing wrong with any of that, but you can see over time how such a focus on truth and, and, and error. You're worried about the Nicolaitans, and they're saying they're Christians, and they're heretics, and so you've got that influence as well. It's a hostile environment, and in that environment where you're constantly on the defensive, constantly trying to keep out error, and constantly trying to keep out immorality, and constantly trying to keep your people faithful in the midst of a, again, a, a hostile religious environment. It can be easy after a generation to lose sight of love for Jesus. It could be easy in that setting to be so focused on what you're against that you forget about the one that you're for. I think that's what happened to the Ephesian church with the best of intentions. Jesus is offered to those who overcome, and he doesn't tell us how they're going to overcome. We've got to read the rest of the book for that, and we will. But to those who overcome, he says, you get to eat from the tree of life. Remember in Genesis, two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. We want to eat from the tree of life. The Ephesians have been eating a lot from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're so focused, and some of it's good and right, but they're so focused on the truth and the error and who's got it right and who's wrong. They're so focused on kind of building the wall that they've, they're losing relationship. You're going to cease being a church in Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel has this vision, the, the cloud, which represents the presence of God leaving the temple. All the activities of the temple were still going on. People still showing up and offering sacrifices and going to the festivals. But God's not a part of it. And that's kind of my picture of the Ephesian church. Jesus is saying, you've got to be careful. You'll keep doing all the stuff that you're doing. You're still going to be getting together and talking about the Bible and taking communion and eating together, but God's not going to be a part of it. You're forsaking him. You're in danger of divorcing him. He's holding you tightly in his right hand, and you're wriggling free of that. We want to have ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us today. As the pastor of Stonebridge, I don't, I don't think this letter applies to us corporately. I don't. But I do think it applies to some of us individually. I think some of us are in danger of falling into that Ephesian trap. So focused on knowledge about God to the neglect of relationship with or love for God. That can be for lots of reasons. Some of you were raised in a church where it was all about doctrine it was all about believing right. Let's make sure we get everything correct and we, can, we got all the answers for the Bible competency exam. And that's what we're focused on. And again, there's some good there. But it can, we can neglect relationships. Some of you have been burned. Bad teaching, bad theology, bad leadership. And so you're super wary. For some of you, it's just the way you're wired. You're a thinker. I am. You're a thinker more than a feeler. And it's easy to get caught up in a belief system rather than focusing on relationship. For some of you, it's the way you're spiritually wired. We talk about apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. You can easily see how a teacher could fall into that trap, but a prophet can too. Black and white, easy to become a heresy hunter if that's you. And so what I want us all to do is we just want to be sensitive. We want to be sensitive. We don't want to lose sight of relationship. So how do you do that? How do you maintain your first love? 
Again, for most of us, and I would think it's probably true for the Ephesian church, it's not a conscious break from Jesus. It's not an intentional neglect of relationship. It's a focus on something else that may even be okay. Again, in their instance, in the circumstances where they live, I get it. You have the temple right there in your face every day. Every shop you go into has got a little statue of Diana, Artemis. You've got a history of false teachers trying to lead people astray within your congregation. You've got this other group in the city who's saying they're Christians and are practicing all manner of sexual immorality in the name of Jesus. In that setting, how easy would it be? How easy would it be to focus on, let's just make sure we're all on the same page. Let's just make sure. And you, again, over time, begin to get so focused on the fence, on the wall, that you lose sight of Jesus. So how do you maintain that first love? Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, I wonder if he knew they maybe could fall into this trap. I think he had a word from God 40 years ago this, when he tells the Ephesian elders, you've got to watch out for these savage wolves. And I wonder if he had... Again, just a sense, as he was writing this letter to the Ephesians in the early 50s, probably, again, 35, 40 years before Revelation is written. And one of the things that he prays for them, he says, I pray that you would know the height and width and breadth and depth of the love of God. I want you to know, Ephesians, how much God loves you. If we're going to love God, we begin by knowing how much he loves us. First John 4, 19, we love because he first loves us. That is, we love other people. Because God first loved us. But we're actually, we love God because he first loved us. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, he died for us. And so we're respond, when we love God, we're just responding to the love that he first demonstrated to us. All of you have been to a wedding. In a traditional Christian ceremony, the man speaks first. Not because he's better than the woman, but as a living parable, the man represents Jesus. The woman, the bride of Christ. New Testament metaphor. The man says to the woman, here, I'm, I'm making it plain how my posture towards you. You don't have to worry and you don't have to commit first. I'm telling you exactly what you're stepping into. I'm going to have you. I'm going to hold you for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. I'm going to forsake everybody else. You're it for me. Represents Jesus to us. You never have to wonder. He said, while you were still actively rebelling against me, I died for you. You don't have to wonder when you come to me how I'm going to respond because I've already made it plain. I took the first step. And then you respond. We've been brainwashed into thinking we fall into love. You fall into a hole. You make a decision to love. It's a commitment. The sparks, are, that's fine. That's a combination of hormones and interest and attraction. And it's great. It's not love. Love is a commitment to say, I'm going to do what's best for you even at great cost to myself. Remember, this is love. Not that Jesus had goo-goo eyes for you. That he died for you. He was committed to your good even at the cost of his own life. That's the foundation for loving him in return. It's recognizing that he first loved you. 
If you're, not, if you're going to maintain and cultivate love for him over time, you've got to first become convinced of the great love that he has for you. So that's where you begin. And then from there, you cultivate your relationship. We were talking about this in staff meeting, and somebody was mentioning that story in Luke 10. Mary and Martha, you remember that? They're sisters. Jesus comes to their house. Martha is a hostess, gift of hospitality, all wonderful. She's serving Jesus. And then she gets frustrated with her sister who's just sitting at Jesus' feet. The Bible says Martha's distracted. She's pulled away from. She's distracted. And so she goes to Jesus griping and saying, God, don't, don't you care? She's leaving me with all the work. Jesus, don't you care that she's leaving me with all the work? And Jesus says, Martha, you're worried and bothered. Worried and bothered about a lot of things, but there's only one thing that matters, and there's the best part. Mary's chosen it. I don't know how to cultivate relationship over time with Jesus other than to spend time with Jesus. I don't know how else to maintain first love than to spend time with your first love. I don't know how else to do it. There's not a microwave solution. It's just time. I grew up in the 80s, lots of two parents going, or like stereotypes, lots of moms going back to work. Dad's working a lot, mom's going back to work, so we had the whole quality time, quantity time thing, which I think was just to make parents not feel guilty. I think, I think that's where it came from. Don't worry about the quantity, just make sure it's quality that you're spending with your kid. And there's probably some truth there, for sure. The quality matters. For many of you, if you were honest, if I said, tell me, where are you most likely to say a prayer? Number one is going to be the shower. And number two is going to be your car. That's it. We multitask prayer. Which is better than not praying, for sure. But think about your other significant relationships. Think of every time you spent time with fill in the blank. Spouse, kids, parents, best friend. You were always doing something else. Hey, do you want to hang out? Sure, come over and wash my car with me. All right. It's better than nothing. But at some point, doesn't that person say, hey, can we just sit down? Can you just focus on me? Have you ever heard that? How many husbands have your wives ever said, can you listen to me with your eyes? Do you ever get that? Look at me. That's a, fine to ask. Quality. Quantity is important too. What if you were to say to that significant person, hey, you get the best five minutes of my week. You get it every week. You get the best. Thank you. I'm glad I get your best five minutes. I would like a little more at some point. Quality and quantity matter. Time is our most precious resource. Any time you spend with Jesus is time you're not spending doing something else. It is a sacrifice. The stage of life that most of you are in. I don't know, our retirees can speak to whether it's different when you're retired and you're an empty nester. I would imagine it's not a whole lot different. But for the stage of life that most of us are in, time is what you have the least discretion over. It's all spoken for. And so anything you give to Jesus... Those are minutes you don't have to sleep or to work, to rest, whatever. 
It's a sacrifice, and I don't know any other way around it. If we're not convinced first of Jesus' love for us, it's hard to make that sacrifice on a regular basis. If we're not convinced of, of, of how important it is just to be with him, to be with him, then when the urgent comes calling, and that's always, we're going to choose it over what's truly important. Not necessarily because we would ever say, fill in the blank is more important than Jesus. We would say, no, he's the pearl of great price. He's worth everything. He's just not screaming in my ear and blowing up my phone and banging on my door. So no guilt, no condemnation, just invitation from Jesus. What does it look like for you to prioritize time with him? What distracts you? Most likely it's a good thing, not a sinful thing. Most of you aren't debating, well, I could pray or I could go get a massage at the spa. That's not what you're doing. You're thinking, I could pray or I could get 15 extra minutes of sleep. I could pray or I could respond to this email. Some of you are saying, I could pray or I could take a shower. And that's why you do it at the same time. What's distracting you? Are you worried and are you bothered? Discipline is important. It can get you moving. Over time, it's not enough. You need discipline and desire. You've got to marry those two things together to continue to cultivate that love towards the Lord. All right, we're running late. We're going to stop. We do want to take some time and pray. I'll just pray from the front, bud. Sorry we ran over a few minutes. It's my fault. Let's uh, do this. I want you to ask this question honestly before the Lord. Remember the heart of the one who gave the message to the Ephesian church. He's holding them in his right hand. It's to protect them. He wants what's best for them. He's not looking to kind of take them to the woodshed just for the sake of pain and punishment. He wants them to repent and be restored. He doesn't want to take the lampstand away. So would you be willing in your own heart to ask him this and say, Jesus, am I in danger of forsaking you? Would you ask him that question in your heart? The scary one, Jesus, is my in danger of, of divorcing you, of loving other things, not necessarily with my affection, but maybe with my time and with my energy. If you felt him saying, kind of pricking your conscience, again, Hear that in love, not in condemnation. That's not how he works. And maybe ask him this question second. Jesus, would you show me what's distracting me? What's distracting me? What's pulling me away? And again, for most of you, it's not going to be a sin. It's going to be something urgent.
and probably something good. And whatever that was, you can maybe pray along with me, just the spirit of the prayer in your heart. God, I acknowledge that I'm distracted by fill in the blank. I pray you forgive me of that. I want to repent. God, my desire is for what I think is really true in the depth of my heart, that you are the pearl of great price, that I do love you more than anything else. You, I pray that you would give me grace to begin to live that conviction out in my life. And would you show me what that looks like, really practically? Holy Spirit, would you show me what that looks like on Monday and on Thursday? Some of you, you're, when you feel convicted, your response is to become a hero. I'm going to start getting up at 4 in the morning and it's 3 hours. And like, don't do that. Don't. God's not looking for heroes. He's looking for faithfulness over time. He's looking for sons and daughters. So God, would you give me grace? Would you show me really practically what it looks like to cultivate relationship with you? What it looks like to prioritize you as my first love? God, I want to thank you for the men and women in this room who are on it. They are super vigilant and diligent when it comes to matters of truth and righteousness. We don't want to diminish that or denigrate that at all. I'm thankful for people who you would say to them, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance, and I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for remaining faithful in a difficult environment, in that secular or idolatrous or hostile place in which you live or work. I'm so proud of you for remaining faithful. I love the way you're a student of the word. You know the truth. You're not easily fooled. You're not led astray by counterfeits. I love that. But you steer away from immorality, even when it's culturally permissible. I love that about you. God, I pray for those that is them. I pray they would hear you saying to them, you're doing great. But for those of us, or and for those of us who are in danger of falling into the Ephesian disaster, would you bring conviction and repentance and restoration? I pray that this would be a week where we would recognize on a deeper level the height and width and breadth and depth of your great love for us. I pray for people who have been following you for years, but if they were honest, would say, I've never experienced the love of God. I, I sing about it and I read about it and I know it in my mind, but I've never experienced that reality. Would this be the week that you would communicate to them how greatly loved they are by you in a way that they could understand? Give us ears to hear what you're saying to us, beginning with how much you love us. And then, God, I pray that you would show us day by day how to faithfully respond to your love with ours. In Jesus' name.